Chapter 14 of the Moors in Spain by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 14 Bearing the Cross. Boabdil's last sigh was but the beginning of a long period of mourning and lamentation for the luckless Moors he had ushered to destruction. At first, indeed, it seemed as if the equitable terms upon each Granada had capitulated would be observed, and freedom of worship and the Mohammedan law would be upheld. The first archbishop, Hernando de Talavera, was a good and liberal-minded man, and forcible conversion formed no part of his policy. He strictly respected the rights of the Moors, and sought to win them over by force of example, by uniform justice and kindness, and by conforming as far as possible to their ways. He made his priests learn Arabic and said his prayers in the same ungodly tongue, and by such concessions so wrote on the minds of the populace that in 1499, when Cardinal Jimenez was sent by the queen to aid him in the work, it seemed as if the scenes which occurred at Jerusalem in the infancy of the faith were about to be reenacted at Granada. In one day, no less than 3,000 persons received baptism at the hands of the primate, who sprinkled them with the hyssop of collective regeneration. Jimenez was little in harmony with the archbishop's soft ways. He was the apostle of church militant. Always most active when militant meant triumphant, and would have the souls of these infidels saved from hellfire whether they like it or no. He insinuated in Isabella's holy minds the pernicious doctrine that to keep faith with infidels was breaking faith with God, and it is one of the few bloods on the good queen's name that she at length consented to the persecutions of the Moors, or Moriscos, as they now began to be called. The first attempt to coerce the Granadinos was a failure. Some of the straighter Muslims expressed their repugnance to the new conversions to Christianity, and these malcontents were arrested. A woman being hailed to prison on such a pretext roused the people of the Albaicin. They rose in arms and rescued her, and Granada was filled with uproar and barricade fights. The garrison was hopelessly outnumbered. Jimenez raged with impotent fury, but the peaceful archbishop went forth, followed only by his cross-bearer, and fearlessly entering the Albaicin, was at once surrounded by the people who kissed his garments and laid their wrongs before him, in whom they accepted a just and generous mediator. Talavera composed the disputes, and the cardinal had to retire. Jimenez was, however, not a man to be easily deterred from his purpose. He induced the queen to promulgate a decree by which the Moors were given their choice of baptism or exile. They were reminded that their ancestors had once been Christian, and that by descent they themselves were born in the church and must naturally profess her doctrine. The mosques were closed. The countless manuscripts that contained the result of ages of Moorish learning were burnt by the ruthless cardinal, and the unhappy infidels were threatened and beaten into the gospel of peace and goodwill, 
after the manner already approved by their Catholic majesties in respect of the no less miserable Jews. The majority, of course, yielded, finding it easier to spare their religion than their homes, but a spark of the old Moorish spirit remained burning bright among the hillmen of the Alpuharas, who for some time held their snowy fastness against their persecutors. The first efforts to suppress the rebellion ended in disaster. Don Alonso de Aguila, whose fame in deeds of daring do had been growing for forty years of valiant chivalry, was sent into the Sierra Bermeja in fifteen o one and sustained a terrible defeat at the hands of the Moriscos, who crushed his cavalry with the massive rocks which they hurled down upon them. Beyond the sand between the rocks where the old cork trees grow, the path is rough and mounted men must singly march and slow. There over the pass, the hidden range, the ambuscados line, high up they wait for Aguila as they begins to shine. Their nose avails the eagle eye, the guardian of Castile, the eye of wisdom, nor the hearts that fear might never feel. The arm of strength that yield well the strong mace in the fray, nor the broad plate from whence the edge of fortune glance away. Not knightly valor their avails, nor skill of horse and spear, for rock and rock comes rumbling down from cliff and cavern drear. Down, down, like driving hell they come, and horse and horsemen die. Like cattle whose despair is dumb when the fierce lightnings fly. Alonso with handful more escapes into the field. There like a lion stands at bay, in vain besought to yield. A thousand foes around are seen, but none draws near to fight. Afar with bolt and javelin they pierce the steadfast night. A hundred and a hundred darts are hissing round his head. Had Aguila a thousand hearts, their blood had all been shed. Faint and more faint, he staggers upon the slippery sword. At last his back is to the earth. He gives his soul to God. Another and more probable legend, however, tells how Aguila was killed in fair fight by the commander of the Moors. He was the fifth lord of his line who died in combat with the infidels. This temporary success, however, only aggravated the reprisals of now exasperated Christians. The Count of Tendilla stormed Guéhar. The Count of Serin blew up the mosque in which the women and children of a wide district had been placed for safety. And King Ferdinand himself seized the key of Pesis, the castle of Lanzaron. The remnant of the rebels fled to Morocco, Egypt, and Turkey, where their skill as artificers secured them a living. Thus the first revolt in the Alpuharas was suppressed. Half a century of smoldering hatred ensued. The Moriscos grudgingly fulfilled the minimum of the religious duties imposed on them by their outward conversion, but they took care to wash off the holy water with which their children were baptized as soon as they were out of the priest's sight. They came home from their Christian weddings to be married again after the Mohammedan rite, and they made the Barbary corsair at home in their cities and helped him to kidnap the children of the Christians. A wise and honest government, respecting its pledges given at the surrender of Granada, 
would have been spared the danger of this hidden disaffection, but the rulers of Spain were neither wise nor honest in their dealings with the Moriscos, and as time went on, they became more and more cruel and false. The infidels were ordered to abandon their native and picturesque costume, and to assume the hats and breeches of the Christians, to give up bathing and adopt the dirt of their conquerors, to renounce their language, their customs and ceremonies, even their very names, and to speak Spanish, behave Spanishly, and rename themselves Spaniards. The great emperor Charles V sanctioned this monstrous decree in 1526, but he had the sense not to enforce it, and his agents used it only as a means of extorting bribes from the richer Moors as the price of official blindness. The Inquisition was satisfied for the time with a traffic in toleration which filled the treasury in a highly satisfactory way. It was reserved for Philip II to carry into practical effect the tyrannical law which his father had prudently left alone. In 1567 he enforced the odious regulation about language, customs, and the like, and to secure the validity of the prohibition of cleanliness, began by pulling down the beautiful baths of the Alhambra. The wholesale denationalization of the people were more than any folk, much less the descendants of the Almansors, the Abdulrahmans, and the Albenserajis could stomach. A fracas with some plundering tax gatherers set light to the inflammable materials, which had long been ready to burn up. Some soldiers were murdered by peasants, in whose huts they were billeted. A dyer of Granada, Farax Aben Farax, of the blood of the Albenserajis, gathered together a band of the disaffected and escaped to the mountains before the garrison had made up their minds to pursue him. Hernando de Valo, of the race of the caliphs of Cordoba, a man of note in Granada, but brought to disgrace by his dissolute habits, was chosen king of Andalusia, with the title of Muley Mohammed Aben Omeya, and in a week the whole of the Alpujarras was in arms, and the second Morisco rebellion had begun, 1568. The district of the Alpujarras was well fitted to harbor a revolt. The stretch of high land between the Sierra Nevada and the sea, about 19 miles long and 11 broad, is so rudely broken into rugged hills and deep ravine that it would be hard to find in its whole surface a piece of level ground except in the small valley of Andarax and on the belt of plain which intervenes betwixt the mountain and the sea. Three principal ranges spurs of the Sierra Nevada and themselves spurred with lesser offshoots intersected from north to south. Through the glens thus formed a number of streams, torrents in winter but often dry in summer, pours the snows of Mule Asen and pick the Valletta into the Mediterranean. In natural beauty and in many physical advantages, this mountain land is one of the most lovely and delightful regions of Europe. From the tropical heat and luxuriance, the sugar canes and the palm trees of the lower valleys and of the narrow plain which skirts the sea like golden zone it is but a step through gardens steep cornfields and olive groves 
to fresh alpine pastures and woods of pine, above which vegetation expires on the rocks where snow lies long and deep, and is still found in the nooks and hollows in the burning days of autumn. When thickly peopled with laborious moors, the narrow glens bottomed with rich soil were terraced and irrigated with a careful industry which compensated for want of space. The villages, each nestling in its hollow, were perched on a craggy height, were surrounded by vineyards and gardens, orange and almond orchards, and plantations of olive and mulberry, hatched with the cactus and aloe, above on the rocky uplands, were heard the bells of sheep and kine, and the wine and fruits, the silken oil, the cheese and the wool of the alpujarras, were famous in the markets of Granada and the seaports of Andalusia. It was this beautiful province that the bigotry of the priest was about to deliver over to the sword and brand of the soldier. The great rebellion in the Alpujarras lasted for two years, and its repression called forth the utmost energy of the Spaniards. Its records are full of deeds of reckless bloodshed, of torture, assassination, treachery, and horrible brutality on both sides. But they are relieved by acts of heroism and endurance which would do honor to any age and any nation. The struggle was fierce and desperate. It was the Moors' last stand. They felt themselves at bay, and they avenged in their first mad rush of fury a hundred years of insult and persecution. Village after village rose against its oppressors. Churches were desecrated. Our Lady's picture was made a target. Priests were murdered, and too often horrid torture was used against the Christians, who, for their part, took refuge in belfries and towers, and valiantly resisted the sudden assault of the enemy. We read how two women, left alone in a tower, facing the door and armed only with stones which they aimed from the battlements, wounded by arrows and supported by nothing save their own brave hearts, kept out their assailant from dawn till noon, when relief fortunately came. Another golden deed is told of the advance of the Christian expedition to put down the revolt. The troops had arrived at the ravine of Tablete, a grim chasm a hundred feet deep with a roaring torrent at the bottom. The Moriscos had destroyed the bridge, and only a few tottering planks remained, by which a venturesome scout might cross if needful. On the other side of these planks, Moorish archers kept their bows at stretch. It is not surprising that the soldiers recalled from such a crossing. The dancing plank, the torrent's roar, and the Moorish arrows were enough to daunt the bravest. While the army stood irresolute, a friar came to the front and calmly led the way across the plank over the torrent to the very arrows of the enemy who were too much struck with admiration to think of shooting. Two soldiers sprang after the devoted friar. One reached the other side, the other fell into the hissing flood beneath. Then the whole army plucked up heart and crossing as quickly as they could, and mustering on the other side, charged up the slope and carried the position. It was Thermopylae reversed with a friar for its Leonidas. 
a balaclava galloped upon the quicksands, and it redeems a long catalogue of baseness. The Marquess of Mondeja, who commanded at Granada, endeavored by conciliation and generosity to calm the rebellion, which his resolute march into the mountains at the head of 4,000 men had to a great extent suppressed. But an accidental massacre at Tubiles and an act of treachery at Aroles rekindled the flame of revolt which had been partly extinguished, and the ruthless murder of 110 Moriscos by their Christian fellow prisoners in the jail of the Albaicin still further exasperated the persecuted race. Mondeja was innocent of any share in this bloody work and was marching with his guard to the prison to quell the disturbance when the Alcaide met him with the remark, It is unnecessary. The prison is quiet. The Moors are all dead. After this, the Moriscos gained daily in strength and Aben Umeya became really lord of the whole district of the Alpujarras. This incapable and profligate sprig of Cordoban nobility enjoyed his power for a very brief period, however, for in October 1569, private spite and suspicion led to his being strangled in bed by his own followers, when an able and devoted man, the true leader of rebellion, and one who could even dare to die for his friend, assumed the title of king as Muley Abdallah Aben Abo. Aben Abo had to deal with the new opponent. The king's half-brother, Don John of Austria, a young man of twenty-two but full of promise, superseded Mondeja as commander-in-chief against the Moriscos, and after a protracted war of letters, he convinced Philip of the gravity of the situation and the necessity for strong measures. At last, Don John received his marching orders, and after that, it was but a short shrive that the Moriscos had to expect. In the winter of 1569-70, he began his campaign, and in May the terms of surrender had been arranged. The months between had been stained with the crimson river of blood. Don John's motto was no quarter. Men, women, and children were butchered by his order and under his own eye. The villages of the Alpujarras was turned into human shambles. Even when the rebellion seemed at an end, a last feeble flicker of revolt once more sprang up. Aben Abo was not yet reconciled to oppression. Assassination, however, finally convinced him. His head was exhibited over the gate of the shambles at Granada for thirty years. The Grand Commander, Lacassens, by an organized system of wholesale butchery and devastation, by burning down villages and smoking the people to death in the caves where they had sought refuge, extinguished the last spark of open revolt before the 5th of November, 1570. The Moriscos were at last subdued at the cost of the honor and with the loss of the future of Christian Spain. Slavery and exile awaited the survivors of the rebellion. They were not very many. The late wars, it was said, had carried off more than 20,000 Moors, and perhaps 50,000 remained in the district on that famous day of all saints, 1570, when the honor of the apostles and martyrs of Christendom 
was celebrated by the virtual martyrdom of the poor remnants of the Moors. Those taken in open revolt were enslaved, the rest were marched away into banishment under escort of troops, while the passes of the hills were securely guarded. Many hapless exiles died by the way, from want, fatigue, and exposure, others reached Africa, where they might beg a daily pittance, but could find no soil to till. Or France, where they received a cool welcome, though Henry the Fourth had found them useful instrument for his intrigues in Spain. The deportation was not finished till 1610, when half a million moriscos were exiled and ruined. It is stated that no less than three million of Moors were banished between the fall of Granada and the first decade of the 17th century. The Arab chronicler mournfully recalls the coup de grace. The Almighty was not pleased to grant them victory, so they were overcome and slain on all sides, till at last they were driven forth from the land of Andalusia, to which calamity came to pass in our own days in the year of the flight, 1017. Verily to God belong lands and dominions, and he gives them to whom he doth will. The misguided Spaniards knew not what they were doing. The exile of the Moors delighted them. Nothing more picturesque and romantic had occurred for some time. Lope de Vega sang about the sentencias justa by which Philip III, despreciando sus barbaros tesoros, vanished to Africa, las últimas reliquias de los Moros. Velázquez painted it in a memorial picture, even the mild and tolerant Cervantes forced himself to justify it. They did not understand that they had killed their golden goose. For centuries, Spain had been the center of the civilization, the seat of arts and sciences, of learning, and every form of refined enlightenment. No other country in Europe had so far approached the cultivated dominion of the Moors. The brief brilliancy of Ferdinand and Isabella, and of the empire of Charles V, could found no such enduring preeminence. The Moors were banished. For a while, Christian Spain shone, like the moon, with the borrowed light. Then came the eclipse, and in that darkness Spain had groveled ever since. The true memorial of the Moors is seen in desolate tracts of utter barrenness, where once the Moslem grew luxuriant vines and olives and yellow ears of corn. In a stupid, ignorant population where once wit and learning flourished, in the general stagnation and degradation of a people which has hopelessly fallen in the scale of the nations and has deserved its humiliation. End of chapter 14 End of the Moors in Spain by Stanley Lane Poole